Hello and welcome to episode three of Beyond Red and Blue podcast, a podcast where we attempt to critically engage with ideas and depolarize the conversation. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Hey, hey. So today I thought we would talk about failure. We talked last week um, in our first podcast about personal responsibility and kind of how we both felt about it. And um, failure is something that is uh, an integral part of how I conduct the things I do throughout my day and my life, Um, how I look at failure, what I expect from it, what I don't, that sort of things. And so I thought it might be good to spend some time and really deconstruct what it means to each of us, kind of how it plays a part in our lives. Um, We'll probably spend a good amount of time talking about jujitsu. At least I probably will because near as I can tell, doing jujitsu is synonymous with failure because that's basically what you do for like 10 years is you just fail. Well, ultimately, even on a a broader scale, it's a fantastic analog for real life. Yes. In, In so many different ways. Um, it's not just about learning how to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so I thought maybe first what we could do is, uh, I can start, I'll start with you this time since I started first last time. If you want to kind of give me a breakdown of what are your like true personal thoughts about failure? What do you like about it? Are you okay with it? Do you, you know, how does it set with you when it occurs? Are you the kind of person who gets angry and you know, rages at the world when you fail, or is it something that you accept as part of learning? Like, kind of break that down for me a bit. Well, I guess we can start by saying failure is uh, integral to success. And anybody who has experienced a large degree of success in whatever endeavor uh, will most likely agree with that. Um, you know, in jiu-jitsu, we have the saying, uh, win or learn. So it's not win or lose, it's if you... Uh, if you fail at that match, if you did not uh, beat your opponent, then there are definitely going to be lessons to be learned there. So mm-hmm. rather than uh, focusing on the fact that you didn't get the outcome that you were hoping for, um, it's a much better use of your mental resources to glean the lessons from that mm-hmm. and, and get better next time. Um, I know in a, in a business sense, it's often said if you want to increase increase your success rate, you need to double your failure rate, which just means that don't don't stigmatize an attempt to do something great if it doesn't work out. Um, it's it's part of the process. Yeah. Um, and again, jujitsu being a great analog, um, it's it's something that not a lot of people even talk about it because it's so obvious. It's so ingrained. It's just part of what it is to do jujitsu. You're going to get tapped and you're going to get tapped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the, for the folks that don't train jujitsu, we'll try and in- include the broader crowd. Uh, I'm sure you've seen stuff on TV, whether it's the UFC or some other things and jujitsu just being the art of ground fighting and, uh, and being able to either uh, choke your opponent unconscious or place them in a position where they are forced to give up lest they sustain serious injury. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that, explaining the concept of jujitsu. Um, oh, so, you know, within that process, um, you're going to attempt to do exactly that either you know put a choke on somebody or get them into some sort of joint manipulation 
Um, but it's not going to work because you need to practice and you need to learn the lessons. And if you are uh, training with someone that is better than you, mm -hmm. then they most likely know all that you know and a whole bunch more. So they, you know, they can um, predict what you're going to do and, and counter it and things like that. But it's never looked at like, oh, I tapped. I'm a failure. I'm never going to be good at jujitsu. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's literally just part of the process. You, you, uh, pat your hand on the person's body somewhere two, three times. That's considered a tap. That means that you give up. And at that point you start over and you try again and you try again and you try again. Um, and if, you know, if you're going with somebody good, if you're going with a black belt and you're not a black belt, then expect That's all to, that happens. Yeah. Expect yeah. to tap every time. Um, but what you can learn from that is, is absolutely tremendous and key to getting better at jujitsu. So I think that it's so thoroughly understood just by the nature of the activity. We don't talk about it a lot, mm -hmm. but that principle carries over to real life. Um, you know, if you, if you get stuck in a situation or you made a bad choice and you have to tap out in life, so to speak, meaning you have to acknowledge that it didn't go your way. Maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you made a mistake that you're going to have to pay some consequences for. Um, then do that, pay your consequences and, and don't lose the lesson from, you know, what it is you were attempting to do, why it didn't go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and either realize that was not the best course of action or just figure out what happened wrong and take another crack at it. And again, and again, and again, until you succeed. So yeah, failure, failure is key. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't suck. No, Sucks. Win winning's better. Winning's way better. And Again, with the understanding in a jiu-jitsu gym um, that that's part of the process, then, you know, tapping out typically isn't a big deal. Um, so you don't have the social pressure of, oh, you didn't succeed at, at what you're trying to do, um, which is perfect. That is a good learning environment. But in the rest of society, that is typically not the case. You know, if, if someone fails, particularly in today's social media climate, um, then canceled. that's it. You're done. You're canceled. Uh, we don't want to hear from you anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, that's tragic, really, because if we don't give people the opportunity to learn from their mistakes, become better human beings, then um, our society will never progress because everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody does make mistakes. And when it becomes a game of let's dig through your past to find out what mistakes you made and uh, cancel you for them, then nobody's going to get any better. Everybody's just going to be scared and, and not willing to try things, not willing to explore uh, different and new mm -hmm. ideas. Well, so. that fear of failure, I think, will, uh, it'll freeze people. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It'll, uh, I mentioned last week, I'm reading Harry Potter. So it'll, it's the basilisk, right? In Harry Potter too, that turns everyone to stone if they, or kills them if they look directly at it. I think that's, that kind of that's what popped into my head is, you know, you're so afraid of failure and shortcomings that you're, you won't do anything new. You know, and we actually see this with, um, this kind of started when I was a kid. I don't remember it too much. And I don't know if that's just because how my parents were, or if that's how my, my, where I grew up was, but you see this a lot with like schools and with uh, sports competitions and stuff. There's, um, it seems to be like a general push, like or an aversion to the having kids um, experience failure. Mm 
right? And so, um, you know, safe spaces might be a good example of this. That, that could be maybe a little bit more um, on another topic, but it seems to me that there's a little bit of that there. Um, most specifically, it's the ones that I think do definitely do uh, resonate with this or um, things like not keeping score in sports. That's so ridiculous. I... Or <laughs> on top of that, participation trophies. Yeah. Um, or just the concept of that um, versus having clear delineation of winners. Um, you know, and, it, and it's, I understand the attempt. It's um, what's, what's the saying? The, um, the path to hell is paved through good, with good intentions, right? Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I don't want kids to feel left out. So, but, so we don't keep score. We, you know, we give everyone a participation trophy. But at the same time, like, they're very clear winners and losers. And kids aren't dumb. Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't do a lot of baseball as a kid. I did until I was about 11, but 11 or 12. But I remember doing t-ball, and they didn't keep score in t-ball. And I don't think they kept score in the the league right above that. When I was like six and seven, they had the fast pitch or the the, the machine, and um, instead of an actual pitcher. And um, in both cases, I don't like I said I don't believe they kept score in the, in, in the the league right above t-ball. But I knew, and everyone on my team knew, we weren't very good, and we we lost all the time because we did. We had we had a crappy team, even though there was no score kept. It was like we knew we're not stupid. Like we count. <laughs> You know, we're, we're learning basic math at this point. Like, you know, we, we know what's going on. And it, it always struck me that, like, you know, why? Why not? Like, yeah, we lost. That sucks. But it's not like I'm never going to not lose again in the future. Like, this is just going to continue to happen. Some people win more than others, and some people lose way more than others. But everyone loses at some point. Everyone's going to lose a job. They're going to fail a test. They're going to get a question wrong. They're going to embarrass themselves. They're going to get a divorce or get a breakup or you know, get cheated on or do a drug and o- overdose or commit a crime. Like they're going to hit another car with their car and it's going to be their fault or hit a pedestrian, like whatever. They're going to trip and fall, like you know, and they're going to fail at walking, like I mean, all this stuff, right? They're going to enter a race and lose. They're going to try and do jujitsu and they're going to get their ass kicked. Like it doesn't matter how big or strong or fast they are. Like even the biggest, strongest, fastest, most athletic individuals also lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, this is a slight tangent, but you saw it last year at the ADCC with uh, um, Lachlan Giles, right? He, um, yeah, five, my height, you know, five, nine, five, 10, 160, 170 pounds, you know, average size guy, kind of small, many be smaller than me, entered the absolute, so no weight limit, submission only tournament, right? And so the average weight excluding him was like 240 pounds. So he's like, dra- he's like 80 pounds less than everybody, basically. And, and he, you know, they're all six two, six four, huge. You know, most of them have six packs. Like it's just absurd, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he tapped out three of them on his way to a bronze medal. Yeah. And then you know, and it's like he people fail just because you're big and strong and really good doesn't mean you're, someone's going to beat you, even if it's a tiny guy. And that's actually why I like jujitsu is because in most sports that's just not going to happen. You probably won't see that in boxing. No people hit too hard you know it's just there's only so much damage you can take but um but like that that's you kind of need to experience that kind of stuff and uh, i re- i didn't link the article um to my notes since so i don't have it but there was a um I, d- I remember reading of an article where as part of the school program um they have a dance or dances and um, kids are not allowed to say no if someone asks them to a dance so so is what seriously yes it's a legitimate thing because they wanted to, they didn't want to um, essentially, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing because it's been a while since I read the article, but they basically didn't want to 
um, they wanted to shield the kids from rejection, essentially, or, or which is failure. I mean, like you're, you're attempting mm-hmm. to do something, you say you like a girl or boy or whatever, and you want to ask them to a dance. And like, it, there's a legit, legitimate fear of this person says no, and then what? Like your entire worldview up to that point is now gone because your world included this person saying yes, and then there's like everything that's unknown after that. Social stigma, datelessness, um, maybe you smell bad or you're ugly, like you're stupid, like all the things that you don't know about yet. And so you had to say yes. And I think the school got flack for it because like there was this girl who I think a boy asked her to the dance and she didn't want to go with him and she, but she had to say yes. And so there's like a consent issue there too that it like violates. And that's like a whole separate thing um, with this instance, right? Because if people don't want to go, they should have the right to say no. Absolutely. You yeah. know, and so you kind of balance those things out. But it, I, I was reminded of that when I was writing my notes for this because it because it was an attempt, broadly speaking, to inoculate or, you know, uh, um, insulate kids from experiencing rejection, failure, loss, what have you. And it violated probably without even meaning to, I don't think they intended this to happen, but um, kind of one of our fundamental rights and responsibilities as humans, which is the right to our own autonomy and our own agency, mm-hmm. right to say no, if we don't want to do something. Yeah. And you know, th- and those obviously clash. I think they, the school ended up taking that away and they're like, no, you can say no now. And um, I didn't follow up on it. So I'd be, I'd feel kind of bad. I would chuckle, but it'd be funny if like all the girls just told the boys they didn't want to go with them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it, I, it's always found that very odd that when stuff like that happens. And, you know, when we talked last week about helicopter parenting, um, and that's the other thing that came to mind is that there's through all, it seems like all faucets of a kid's life, right? You have, you have your school, you have sports, ac- extracurricular activities and parents you have, they're doing everything that they can, it seems to shelter and uh, stave off the badness of the world. Um, which is one of the worst things you could possibly do if your goal is to raise capable human beings yeah. that can operate successfully in society. Um, and I, I mean, we're, we're seeing now the fruits of, um, of this ideology. I wouldn't call it an ideology, but the, just the, the concept of not wanting people to feel bad to that extreme. Um, you know, negative emotions are there for a reason. We're tilted towards negative emotions as the species. Yeah. And it's there, they're there for a purpose and they're, they're not fun to experience, but it can make you a better, more successful human being by, by listening to them. Um, it's, it's like complaining that you go to the gym and you say the weights are too heavy. Well, they're supposed to be heavy. You're supposed to be doing a challenging thing and that's how you grow. And I think that dealing with negative emotions is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's, there, you know, as with everything in life, there's nuance to that, meaning, you know, if you go to the gym and there's nothing but 200 pound dumbbells, well, that's not appropriate for you. Yeah, I'm going to complain that these weights are too heavy. Sure. Um, and there are times when uh, an emotional situation is so negative that it's more damaging than anything. Yes, of course. Um, but to try to shelter the kids from every possible negative emotion is an enormous disservice to them. Um, life is tough. You're going to have bad things happen to you. And if you're not ready for that, then you're going to be at a, a serious disadvantage when you get out into the, the quote unquote real world. 
Um, and, and we're seeing that now. We're seeing these uh, very sheltered kids now moving into the workforce that got participation trophies and their parents never wanted them to feel a bad emotion um, that now they are not functioning well in society. Now the downside I see for us <laughs> meeting earlier generations is that rather than realizing that and trying to become better human beings or trying to change society itself to match those expectations and I, it, it's just, it's folly for everyone involved. Um, it's doing, you know, trying to guard yourself from all negative emotions and making sure every place is a safe space uh, hurts everyone, including the people that think they want safe spaces. Yeah. Um, it's tragic. What do you think is a, what, what, what do you think is a viable first step? Assuming we haven't taken a first step towards a solution that could be of benefit to the most amount of people yeah. marginalized or otherwise. That's a tough one. I have a, I have a feeling we're going to have to learn it the hard way if we learn it at all, because particularly because that generation, um, like Gen Z or whatever parts of uh, the millennials, because they are, I'll say indoctrinated, with that type of view on life and also so uh, used to and having grown up with the current model of communication, meaning social media, mm -hmm. um, that they have an inordinate amount of power to push these ideas without getting any push back. There's no challenging of any ideas. Um, therefore, I think what, could be an outcome that eventually might be good is it effectively runs its course. Hopefully the nation will survive, but it'll have to get worse before it gets better. And eventually enough people will realize and they will see the negative results of this, this type of uh, thinking that enough people will be fed up and say, hold on that we, we got to stop doing this. Um, but I don't think that the, um, the negative results are fully apparent yet to enough people. Like you and I see this coming and we are trying to, you know, ally with other people that, that think similarly and mm -hmm. try to get this message out to, to hopefully just get this conversation going. But ultimately I think it's going to be the conversation itself that when enough people realize how foolish this is and how unproductive it is, um, that that conversation, this conversation really, will begin to become mainstream. At that point, then maybe we can make some changes. Um, but right now, the the silent but incredibly loud minority, or rather the incredibly loud minority that is online pushing these ideas um, does not have sufficient resistance. And they don't have a need to actually... Um, intellectually defend their positions. They well, it's all, it. it's also antithesis to, to their, um, pedagogy, right? Like it's, it, it's antithesis to their worldview yeah. to actively defend, um, because to engage in a defense of, or a dialogue with someone who does not agree with you 
on these ideas is to essentially engage with the uh, with the system that you're fighting, which you shouldn't do. You should only try and subvert and you know disrupt and change the system. And so, but and that's that that in and of itself is an inoculation of that failure that I that I'm we, we talked about a couple at the start of the podcast. It's it because. It's like, okay, well, we have an idea. And you, you were talking about it a, a minute or so ago about um, no one's challenging the ideas, right? This is the, kind of the same thing in that you have a bunch of ideas. You know, we've talked about this now quite a bit, but and the ideas are pointing or they're identifying problems. And it seems as if over time, they've just been pointing in the wrong direction, trying to solve those problems. And mm -hmm. I think that's in part because no one's been critiquing the ideas. Yeah. And so, which isn't to say that there aren't problems. Again, like I, I feel like a broken record repeating this, but there are actual problems in the world and a lot of them fucking suck. Yep. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that just because there are problems that whoever says there are problems and then has an idea about them is right. And so we have to look at the ideas and break them down and say, why is this right and why is it wrong? Otherwise, we're just going to do dumb stuff. That's just going to happen. Period. <laughs> we figured this out so long ago. Like I'm going to give I'm going to give a very, very old and example that people probably know about, but that fits very neatly into this. And it's the the concept of um, well, it's basically what the Germans did with with uh, the Nazis did, I should say, with uh, um, with with the Jews, but. I mean, the U.S. was actually doing this. The the, the scientists and stuff from Germany during right up into, into the Third Reich were actually studying not only what the U.S. was doing in terms of their race relations, like how they were segregating and how they treated blacks and, and the black community and colored communities and things, but they were also looking at their professors with how they um, and their scientists with how they broke down eugenics and how races differ biologically and all this kind of stuff. And for quite some time, and this has happened a lot over the last hundred years or so, um, you know, it was common knowledge by scientists that Aryans, let's say whites, what, what have you, um, were superior biologically. And like, you can look through American history and see this, like mm -hmm. you can look through German history and see this against the Jews. I mean, you, you, you can look at a lot of different places and see this. Um, but at the time, that was like scientific knowledge and no one questioned it. And so they, that's what the prevailing theory was. And so they went ahead and, you know, enslaved and murdered and, you know, almost eradicated an entire population of people as a result of no one challenging the ideas. And it's like that stuff can get dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, you, you have to, and that's obviously a very radical example for the simple fact that a lot of people were enslaved and, and killed. Um, but it not, not only is it ha did it happen once, but it's happened pr multiple times. And a lot of places that had, you know, these authoritarian regimes across the 20th century had similar philosophies. This actually happened in China. You know, they had a caste system that did similar things. And it, you know, it's still going on as far as I can tell in China. I forget the, the name of the Muslim community up there. But Uyghurs. That's right. Yeah. And so like there's, there's big <clears throat> issues there. And Part of that, from what I understand, and I could be wrong, but what I understand partly is that, you know, they, 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 it's assumed that they're actually less than biologically. 
So that's partly why. And like I said, I could be wrong on that. I, I don't know too much about the conflict there, but I vaguely remember reading something about that. And, and so if no one's going to be here to say, well, that's kind of a stupid idea. Maybe you shouldn't use that to run the government or to attempt to take political power. Then that's what's going to happen because why wouldn't it happen? And so, yeah. and so part of what I see is you have a lot of people who have a lot of good ideas and most of those ideas have been developed in academia through the last 60, 70 years and no one's really bothered them and for good or for better or for worse, but they just keep churning out all these ideas and bouncing them off of each other. And then it gets put into the mainstream and there's been no, there's been no failure. There's been no one to say that's batshit crazy mm -hmm. or that's kind of good. You should do that. Or that's, that's also fucking crazy. Like that's a stupid idea. You need to throw that away immediately because you know, that's basically this or that, you know, that's basically racism or what you're just, what you're describing is genocide. Like that's stupid. You know, even if it feels justified, like you need to throw that idea away um, and think of something better. And it's my hope that that'll happen sooner or later. Like people will start to say, nah, this is kind of a bad idea. I think it's going to have to get pretty bad before I do well, that. The way I, <clears throat> I, I agree, and I think the reason for that is that what you're going to see is everyday individuals, and let's just generalize and say that everyday blue-collar whites are finally going to hear about this stuff, and it's going to be pushed upon them. And they're like, this is really stupid. And then the response is going to be, yeah, because you're a racist. So, of course, you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Because that's what happens is when you disagree, you get name called. Like actually, that's not even hyperbolic. It's you yeah. just get name called. Yep. And so it'll take a while for the country as a whole to be like, eh, I mean, maybe. Or maybe the ideas are just bad or maybe both. Maybe some people are racist, but that doesn't mean that your ideas aren't are good. Maybe that means that they just need to be changed. Because again, like I reiterate, there are problems and I want to solve them. But that doesn't mean that I have to agree with whatever it is that right now is the prevailing, you know, solution to solving those problems. Because maybe I don't think it's a good idea. That doesn't mean I don't think there are problems. It just means that maybe you should stress test your ideas better to show me or other people. Maybe I'm not the one you should show. Like I'm not that important of a person, so it doesn't matter. But to stress test those ideas and see if they hold weight. I think it's it, it, at some level it's a a fundamental misunderstanding or ignorance of what the scientific method is, and that's not science, but it's the scientific method. And one of the key uh, distinguishing aspects of that is um, rather than being a a verificationist model, meaning you have an idea so you look for evidence that it's correct. It's, uh, I don't know, it would be considered a de-verificationist, but the idea is um, if you have a, a hypothesis or an idea as to how something is, then you look for evidence that would contradict that. Mm -hmm. And if you look and look and look and look and look and cannot find the contradictory evidence, then at this point, it would seem to be the correct way of viewing it. Um, but it's not even considered um, a fact necessarily. It could be considered a theory, which is another misunderstanding that most people have, I think. Mm -hmm. um, meaning when, 
I think when it's commonly used, like, oh, I got a theory on this, it really would be closer to say you have an, a hypothesis. But in science, a theory, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. And there's a reason why it's not just called a fact, but that is what leaves room for uh, future evidence to the contrary. Yeah. And that openness to future evidence is is at the the heart and soul of what the scientific method is all about. And it's what has brought us as a species to the point that we're at in, in all levels, meaning, you know, technology and our ability to master our environments and spread around the planet and, and do all that. Um, that is because we figured out a method that is the most useful and uh, pragmatic way hmm. to find truth. Well, it has the most, I think, fail-safes to, you know, stop someone from taking advantage of it, right? Well, it has fail-safes, period. Yeah. Whereas, and, so and I think there's there's a... It's corruptible, but it, it's less so, I think, than a lot of other methods. And that's the yeah. point, is that you want something that's going to withstand the attempts by humans to subjugate it and corrupt it to do what they want. You need that, otherwise you just have... I mean, you have Satan, right, who just thinks he's always right. And it's like, what I say goes, Right. you can't prove me wrong. I think even that is just at the the level of implementation of a scientific method. So the method itself will root out mm-hmm. false truths. But depending on the, the climate of, you know, the political climate and socially how it's being applied, that's where it can definitely be co-opted and, and things yeah. like that. So um, the scientific method itself is so far the best we've come across. However, the people that are implementing it aren't always the best. And that's to be expected. We're all human beings. Um, I think there's another um, distinction here in that the social sciences or the soft sciences are so much more difficult to de-verify. Um, I'm sure there's a better word for that, but you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. To challenge. Um, whereas uh, the quote-unquote hard sciences, like biology and, and uh, physics and things like that, are very testable, very provable. You can yes. stress test the crap out of them, and uh, either they tr- turn out to be true or not. Um, but not so much with social sciences. There's a lot of a lot of variables involved, I think, for that. Um, one, the, I think the biggest one, at least, that comes to mind is the subjectivity of it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's something to be said for the, like the postmodern notion that, you know, we as humans can't be objective. I think that that's actually true. Like Mm -hmm. we're, I mean, we all have our own little picadillos about us that cause us to see the world in our own unique way. So to have an objective view of the world is I think technically impossible, but what we can do is try as hard as we can to come up with a set of you know, abstract statements or values or facts, theories, what have you, hypotheses that are as objectively true as we can make them. And then that, as near as I can tell, is the scientific method does that, right? It's like, what are the things that, like, we we can't, we poke as many holes in as possible, and this this still seems to me to be true. No matter how biased I am, I can have someone else do it too, and they're differently biased than I am still comes out the same. There are going to be changes, like as a slight tangent. Um, I didn't know this, I recently learned this, like 
the um, what is it? The gravity, the speed of gravity, like how fast something will drop. Um, that actually has changed over time. It's like what nine point really? five meters a second or something like that, right? Um, oh, like terminal velocity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's dependent on, a, on an average body. Yeah, ability. and so yeah. that that speed has actually changed over time. Hmm. It's been measured more correctly as we've we've gotten more sophisticated, and so that speed oh, has yeah. changed. Yeah. And it's like so you know we have to have room for that kind of stuff, right? Um, but the soft sciences take the other approach, and as they should, I think that's actually necessary. Like you need an entire field or body of work to look into the subjective view of the world because it's a real part of the world because we all look at things subjectively. Mm -hmm. And that makes it more difficult because it's more susceptible to all of the imp you know, imperfections of humanity, right? Um, at least that seems to me to be the biggest problem is like how, you know, if you reject the objective implicitly and then only focus on subjective, then what we're left with is what I believe and what you believe. Um, so I can give you a crazy example. Okay. I've never been to space. So subjectively, space isn't real to me. I mean, okay. prove to me that it's real. I've never been there. Right. Uh, Nor have I. Yeah, I, like, yeah. so we may be on the same boat there, but <laughs> objectively, like, people have been as far as I know, and it's been observed, and there's stuff up there, but it's like I, in my subjective view of the world, it's not real because I've never seen it. I, I can't prove that what I look at outside is at night is actual space. It's a curtain with holes in it. Yeah, you know, and like we're getting a little, you know, into the weeds with that. But I mean, that that's that's actually a legitimate thing. Like we believe that we see stars in the sky and that those things are really, really far away because people study that stuff and they do the best they can to objectionably or objectively verify that it's not, you know, a painting, right? Or mm -hmm. something to that effect, but um, so it's hard. It's hard to prove that sort of stuff when you have those kinds of theories and you think about that stuff subjectively. It's like there's a lot of the world we just don't know, and that that means that there's going to be more error just naturally. Like there's not really a way around that. I think it's it's there needs to be the understanding of the actual difference between objectivity and subjectivity, whereas <clears throat> any given person's reality, mm -hmm. their uh, their experience of the world, their subjective experience of the world is going to be as real as you can get for that person because that is their experience. Um, so that is, that's definitely a thing and that needs to be considered. However, I think it's important to acknowledge that when we come together as a group of subjective human beings, we can describe something beyond that subjectivity. Hmm we can describe and test that description and refine that description so that we have an understanding that goes beyond just our own personal experience, uh, AKA objective reality. Um, so to toss around, Oh, it's all objective. It's all subjective. Um, it again, lacks nuance. Uh, there's both. We need to acknowledge the importance of both, but not, frame it in such a way that, you know, one is real and one is not, one's better and one's not. They're just um, different. They're different. It's, it's a different way to describe the world and a way to describe one's experience of the world. Uh, 
And I, I think that gets lost. Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, everything is subjective and it's all up to one's personal experience. Um, well, their experience will certainly be unique and individual, of course. But that doesn't mean that we can't describe what is outside of just that experience yeah. to the, you know, the, the physical world and how it behaves. Here's a question. So which do you think is more proper to orient culture, let's say, objectively towards things that are perceivable by the most amount of people or to orient a culture or a society towards things that are much more subjective and individualistic? Neither, both. You have sure. to have both. Um, there, it, it's, you know, the technology we have right now with the, the, the phones and the whole world information in our pockets exists because a few number of people, a very few number of people have done um, experiments and work with things that literally we can't see. There would really, it would say it's impossible in any way for us to experience them subjectively. Subatomic particles, atomic, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and yet our current society relies on those things. Um, so to, to discount that, that just, that, that doesn't even make sense. But given all that technology, ultimately the goal of all this is to improve the subjective experience of uh, a certain group of people. And I say it broadly like that because it could be, you know, a company trying to develop some new technology just because somebody wants to get rich. Uh, but yet the technology is still going to exist. Mm -hmm. that's, that's still a step forward for our, our understanding of the natural world. Um, or it could be for a nefarious purpose or it could be for, um, uh, for the good of all yeah. in, in trying to find a, a cure for cancer or something like that. Um, so I think that that exploration of the natural world and what we can do with technology is important, but we also need to figure out what we're going to do with that. And at that point, then we look at the subjective experience of people and is this technology going to poison X amount of rivers and, you know, kill off, make life miserable for a hundred thousand people. Then at that level, yes, absolutely. You have to take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you need both. You can't, shut one or the other down. If you, if you, I can't imagine a world where it was, it was all just about, uh, pursuing technological advancement without any regard for the consequences to someone's subjective experience and, you know, who that might hurt that you know, uh, that's inconceivable. Of course you gotta, you know, <laughs> otherwise we'll just blow up all the nuclear weapons just to see what happens. <laughs> no, that's, that's not a test we want to run. Um, so yeah, you need both. Well said. I, I do think that um, I look at the dichotomy of object, ob objectivity and subjectivity. Uh, subjectivity. Um, I look at those similarly to how I look at uh, individualism and group identity. In that you want, you want both. You want one subjectivity and individuality nested inside of that group objectivity, let's say. I don't necessarily want to clump those two together because they are very, very different, but you also want it to be able to fit in and out and inform and help grow uh, 
the other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, um, how to do that and how to do it properly is always going to be the problem, right? I, I think if you boil it down enough, that partly what we're having problems with right now, right, is that there's a lot of objectivity in the world and a lot of people are questioning whether that is really objective or if there's problems with it, it needs to change. And um, they're more concerned with looking at subjective issues because those are personal lived experiences. And there's some truth to that. Um, By definition, they're going to be more relevant. It's it, your experience. Yeah, so, at yeah. least in the in the immediate moment, right? Because they're the one living it, correct? And and so, you, but you run into that problem, which is actually why I asked the question a second ago. But is that at what point, you know, do you really prioritize one or the other? And can you even make the decision? Would be another question I have. It's like, when do you prioritize subjective lived experience over the objective truths that we all hold? Right. At what point is that even a good thing to do? Should we do that? Or could something like that actually just fundamentally break apart what we've worked so hard to build as a, as a, as a, as a society? Does that make sense? It does. I think the, the key here is to not overvalue one subjective experience over another, meaning, mm -hmm. yes, your experience, your reality is valid, and so are the 330 million other mm -hmm. experiences in this particular country. Um, so that's where the shift needs to happen from, you know, what about me personally to how are we going to organize uh, and, and govern because that is necessary, uh, this large group of people. Yeah. As a society, that's a different thing and not everybody is going to get what they want, of course. So we got to figure that out so the, the highest number of subjective realities benefit from the decisions being made. Um, and that's the ideal. It certainly doesn't happen. It's not happening right now with the level of corruption that we have in government, but that's, that needs to be understood as the ultimate goal. Um, yes, your experience is important. So <laughs> is everybody else. So we need to figure out how this works as well as it can for a large number of people. Um, and in order to achieve that goal, one must first have a clear view of what the objective reality of the situation is and how to best uh, respond and or change mm -hmm. or deal with that reality so that it can mesh with a subjective reality of a group of people. Yeah. So the I don't have an answer to this question. I don't know if there is an answer to this question, but the question that does come to mind is, on what level do we adjust society then so that it benefits the most number of people? And what I mean by that is, let's say we, let's say we choose race. I don't remember, I don't remember exactly the full like racial breakdown of the U S but I believe that if you just include white non Latino, it's like, is it, Still over 50% of the U.S. is... I believe so, yeah. it's Last I heard, and I haven't been tracking this greatly, but yes, yeah, somewhere at below 60%, but over 50. Okay, I know that soon, it, technically speaking, whites will right. be a minority yeah. compared to everyone else, um, but that's a broad category of everyone else. And so so let's say that we we choose race as the way to do this, then we would do the white way. I don't like that phrase, but that's what came to mind. So, because 
whites outnumber everyone else. So then that would have to change theoretically unless we were to fractionate race into multiple different types of race depending on which probably should happen. Um, so I could see that that isn't really a good solution to the problem. No, no. We've right. been fighting against that for a couple hundred years. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to argue timidly, but still argue it, that we've done that with a modicum of success. We've oh, been, absolutely. We've been bad at it. Like, I'm not going to, you know, that's why I would say timidly, is that I think that we've, we've kind of fought that and we've had problems. That doesn't deny that there hasn't been huge racial issues in our country, but we're, we've made progress. Maybe not as fast as people would like, and that's actually probably an issue. I don't know how fast this stuff is supposed to move, but... Um, but yeah, it's the, so the, really the question is like, like I said, on, on what level do you make those decisions? Because it seems at the moment that it's very much race related. Race is very much the primary issue here. Um, and it seems to me that basing how we do things off of just that as the primary is going, I'm trying to figure out how that can be done equitably um i don't think it should i think it's it's looking at the wrong thing in my opinion um mm -hmm. to to address the problems that our society currently has strictly through a racial lens is is incomplete um it, it blinds you from a lot of other issues that could very well benefit the quote-unquote racialized population mm -hmm. um so to base everything on race is, uh, is just ill-advised, in my opinion. Could I reframe that? Sure. So instead of basing it um, only on race, I would say that it is um, primarily race, but intersectional. So it's intersectional in the way that it functions. So it's not just race. It's the oppression Olympics. But it's pr but race is first. Yeah, that, 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 I could be wrong on this. Um, you know, I talk a lot, you know, on our podcast about reading a, a bunch um, outside of Harry Potter, but um, that seems to me to be the primary in the hierarchy of well, you said the oppression Olympics, but you know, in the hierarchy of of identities and the marginalizations thereof, and and so on and so forth. That seems to me to be the primary, followed um, by different types of gender or gender, but then it fractionates into um, whatever it is that it fractionates into, which probably should be its own podcast. Um, but it seems to me that the race is what's primary, which I do find very interesting. Um, so that would be my um, restatement is that it's not just race only, it's intersectional, but race primary. I think that um, even, even with that, it, it points to uh, an, an ineffective strategy, meaning if your strategy is to divide everyone up into camps, you're black, you're more black, you're queer and black or, or whatever, um, then it, it creates an environment where what needs to happen won't happen, meaning I think that ultimately the solution is to Let's all look at the situation uh, as Americans, at least. If you need to be on a team, let's, okay, we're Americans and we're human beings, but if you want to have an us versus them, let's, let's say us versus China 
or something where some objectionable things are happening. But at, on this patch of dirt in this country, if we were to come together and say, hey, look, we're all Americans and this particular group of Americans uh, is being treated unfairly and suffering for it. How can we come together as Americans yeah. to fix the situation um, versus trying to tear the whole thing down and split everybody up and just fight for the sake of fighting? Um, and that's not to discount anyone's subjective experience that they're they're mad or they're scared uh, that they may feel unsafe, although I think that particular phrase has gotten way out of control, but let's say physically unsafe, um, that th those are all very real mm -hmm. and, and we're not brushing those off. And in order to fix those, the fastest, most effective method is going to be for everyone to come together to help fix it rather than immediately and without the ability to be absolved to um, say that one group is to blame and it's all their fault and we got to tear this all down to make it better, but they don't even have a plan to do that. Yeah. Um, if you're going to demonize the, you know, the, the largest, most politically powerful group at the moment, meaning white men, um, if you're going to demonize them, then you are foregoing the alliances that I think would be necessary in order to get what it is you really want, or at least that you say that you want. Um, so it's just, it's bad tactics. Unless that's the goal. Yeah. So yeah. And yeah. That's the understanding that we as white dudes would be led to believe that the idea is to, um, make the subjective situation for black people better mm -hmm. and people of color and all the other woke stuff. Um, if that is in fact the goal, then there's a better way to do it. If that's just what they're saying and that's not actually the goal, then, uh, I think as a movement itself, it, it frankly needs to be stopped because it will, uh, work against everyone in this current system, including them. Uh, so yeah, if, if that's the goal, then it's a bad strategy. And if that's not the goal, if they are just trying to, to, you know, make a giant power grab or burn it all down for the sake of burning it all down, then they just need to be stopped. Um, and if they are not willing to listen to an argument, if they are not willing to, um, intellectually defend and examine their own positions, mm. then then I guess that's no longer an option. And if you don't want to talk, that means we're going to fight, um, which I don't want. It seems like they may want that, but that sounds like a really bad idea, particularly if the world is still run by old white dudes. Yes. Why would you pick that fight? You're not going to win it. Um, I see a problem. Go. The problem that I see is that... <clears throat> The movement we're discussing, um, revolution, let's say, what, what, however you want to label it, it can't fail. And the reason it can't fail is because of what we're talking about. If you're identifying a problem and then you identify who is responsible for the problem and the people who are responsible are the ones who are, you know, in control, let's say, in this example, if you examine, re-examine, or 
decide to critically engage whatever in with your ideas and discover that they are flawed. Who are you going to ask for help? I mean, you're not, so? so let's say that this woke movement, right? They, they discover, they reason or realize that maybe their ideas, let's, I'll just go as far as I can and say that they're too radical. They're not going to work. No one's going to be on board. What they actually want is, you know, they want to overthrow the government and take things over and usher in a socialistic utopia. Let, let's just go all the way down the line there. And then they, they, they realize one day like, well, this is actually a bad idea because like 13 countries have tried socialism, r roughly speaking, I'm probably better off to say communism, but and hundreds of hundred million people died. So maybe you were wrong. Now the whole movement that this entire ideology is based around is the foundation of it is shit because they're wrong. So who are they going to go to and say, look, tail between our legs, we're wrong, but there's still problems. We would like help fixing them. Are they going to turn to the people that they're ostracizing who happen to have power? No, because why would those people help them? Or would they, would they, would they have, you know, would, would they be able to, maybe they would, maybe they would ask, but it would seem to me that like, if I ostracize you all the time, you're above me in power or whatever, and I spend all of my waking moments making fun of you and doing everything I can because you oppress me, whatever. And then I finally realize that I'm actually the one who's kind of an asshole. And then I come to you and say, hey, look, I'm sorry. Can you help me? Like, how luck. yeah like i <laughs> yeah, mean that that, that, that takes a lot for me to ask that question because that's hard to do yeah and that's failure right and then there's the embarrassment that comes with it the shame and then all of the rebirth of trying to re put yourself back together plus you may not be too happy about it because i've just spent a lot of time talking crap and maybe out of your own you know benevolence you decide to help me but that gets problematic under the theory we're discussing anyways for, and we can go over that at another time, but that seems to me to be part of the problem. I've yet to hear anyone really talk about this, and I don't know if it's something that anyone's ever really thought about too much, but it would seem to me that if you spend most of your time pushing back against a power that is oppressive, and there's some truth to that. Like, I'm not denying that there isn't some oppressive issues that we have in our country. Like, that's very true. But if your goal is to try and fix those and you're pointing the finger and then you get a little too radical, which is actually what I think is happening. That's part of the reason I have an issue with, um, say, the woke movement, um, or at least the, it's not so much the movement, it's the people who silently, foundationally run it, the ones who have yeah. the training that everyone right. talks about you need. I have a problem with where that's derived from and what the end goal is of that literature. And if those people determine that they're they might be wrong. Who are they going to ask for help? Like that, that's, I see that as being an actual issue. Oh no, I agree hundred percent. And that's, that's part of why I say it's a bad strategy for yeah. the exact reason. Wherein um, you would benefit most by getting the help of the people you're accusing right now, because, and, and I think fundamentally, you know, it's not a bad thing to point out things that are wrong. Of course, that that's really important. But when you cross the line and demonize an entire gender and an entire race of people that you know nothing about. You've never interacted with these. You just think you understand the white patriarchy. Therefore all white men are evil. Um, then, then you're kind of screwed. 
Because, yeah, it's easy to point to white men that have done fucked up things and that should be removed from their positions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, no shortage of that. But there's also an enormous group of white men that also see these problems and would like to help right up until the point that you accuse them of being evil and racist and there's nothing they can do about it. Exactly. Yes. And that's always where my point has been. And that's why I say the more radical and you, you push it push it too far is because that's pushing it too far to me Mm -hmm. is it's like I'm on board right until you claim to know that I personally personally am that you know the evil incarnate that's the problem with this country and it's like you can try and justify that all you want but no and the way the way that you get around it is you dissolve individualism like I, because I, I can, and there is a problem with this, but I can individually remove myself from that problem, because I am an individual. I have the right to say I'm not a part of the patriarchy if I don't want to be, because it's bad. Right. And there's a problem. There's a lack of responsibility there, right? Let's just say hypothetically that it things are as systemically bad as people claim them to be. It's this rooted issue that's been going on for a hundred years and it's in the neural fibers of our brains because it's been ingrained since we were kids and it's how we observe the world and there's a legitimate problem it's like okay the solution still isn't to like if you take that and then you don't allow me the individualism to step out like to maybe fix the problem like i don't see how that's good it's not. There's no and absolution. And again, to the to the to the converse of that is like, if I do step away because I don't want to deal with the problem, like that's irresponsible of me to some degree to do, right? Like that's the other side of that coin. I don't want to claim that it's only good to step away. It's, but you, you have to be aware of the fact that there are actual problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people are. They're like, look, like I'm part of the system. I live here. I have a job. Like you know, I do all the things that everyone else does. But as soon as you start casting identities onto me that don't make really any sense and aren't really, you know, they don't really resonate with the core of who I am. It's like, I lose you, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I'm going to step away. I'm going to step away and say, no, I don't want to be a part of it at all. Like I, I want to solve it on my own with people like me who would just prefer to just do things, just talk about it and try and figure it out versus feeling guilty, let's say, right? Yeah, it's it's it, it's that concept of original sin mm-hmm. that is it's it's ineffective and fucking ridiculous, really. I mean, let me ask you this. Let me ask the audience: uh, raise your hands if ever at, in your life, ever, 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 you believed in Santa Claus. Well, you did. Oh, well, you believe in fairy tales. So now and for the rest of your life, you are someone that believes in fairy tales. Therefore, we can't say anything that you say seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just an extreme example that most people should be able to relate to that, yes, we change and grow and improve as human beings. That's part of the journey. So rather than um, accusing someone of original sin, let's point out things that they've done wrong in the past and how they might be better in the future rather than just saying, oh, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um and if you take it to the stream, to the extreme, of course, you know, a Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever, um, 
okay, you, you have proven <laughs> that you are indeed a bad person, but to just claim that you were born into a system that makes you evil and there is no absolution except do what we say, mm-hmm. um, that, that it has no logical merit to it and is strictly a manipulative framework in order to gain more power. Um, well, it's all, yeah, it's all power-based. And yeah. I think the, you know, we, I'll bring up responsibility again, because I'm probably going to bring it up on every podcast, but, and then I'll tie it into failure too, because I think that they're, in this case, they're both, um, they're both very similar. I think if people can learn individually in his groups to, to try things and fail at them, so try new ideas, fail at them, try things to help fail at it, try again, to make a bad plan versus no plan, let's say, and then realize that it's a bad plan and adjust it. If people can do more of that, I think we'd get a lot further along to fixing this problem. Mm -hmm. I I, I do think that a big part of why there seems to be such a big issue with solving some of the problems that we have to deal with today is because a lot of people, and maybe rightfully so, but a lot of people don't want to admit that they're wrong. Oh, no, of course not. That's it's, hard. It's very hard. I mean, yep. you, you take, say, the woke movement we're talking about, having them admit they're wrong. No, not going to do it. But at the same end of it, you take all of you know the individuals who actually are, who have a, a very large amount of control over the country, let's say the old white men, and none of them are going to admit that they're wrong either. It's very rare. Mm-hmm. And it's like, fair enough, like, some of them have worked pretty hard to get to where they're at. Some, and a lot of them are old and they're entrenched in their views. That doesn't necessarily make it okay, but I can understand why they may not. But, uh, you know, one to admit that they're wrong, but all it takes is a little bit of admission to be like, hey, like, you know, I fucked this one up. Or maybe there's a better way. Maybe it's not so much I fucked this up. Maybe it's, you know what, let's try something new for a change. Whatever that may be, let's think it through first so that we don't destroy our, our country. Let's not do something drastic. But let's try something and see what happens. Let's give mm-hmm. it some time, give it some do, um, you know, and just kind of see where it goes. I feel like that might actually help solve some of the problems pretty quickly, in fact. I, I think people get oh, yeah. used to it. They'll do it more often in their everyday lives, and they'll start to see benefits just dramatically unfold everywhere. Uh, I agree 100%. I, I think this illustrates the difference between a good plan and the execution of that plan, meaning um, logically, of course, that makes sense, but that needs to be um, executed by human beings, Mm -hmm. which makes things infinitely more complex. Um, And based on the evidence that I've seen, much more unlikely because people don't like to admit they're wrong. Yeah. feels bad. Um, so yeah, it's going to be very tough to convince people to make those types of choices and even consider those types of choices, depending on myriad factors and you know how they how they grew up and who their parents were and societal influences and all that. Um, I think it's hard for the vast majority of people to really integrate the idea of embracing failure. Mm-hmm. If um, people want to do that, do jujitsu. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I do, yeah. this has happened when you and I roll, this, is, this mostly happens with uh, Brown Belt Mark, 
because round butt mark is absurd at grappling. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll have a goal. I'll have, and I always keep my goals simple. Like my goal isn't to just tap you out or attempt to, like that's a too broad of a goal. Mm -hmm. My goal is to like, you're, you're Gumby, you're super flexible as an example. So my goal most of the time when we grapple is to pass your guard. Okay. Which for those of you who don't do jujitsu or listening, I'm, 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 his feet are on me basically or in front of me and his head is away from me. And my goal is to pass his feet and his knees, get past his hips and get to his head. So in the, in a pinning position and wrestling, that's my goal. That's really hard because you're flexible. So if there's no space between your elbow and your knee, it's hard for me to get my knee there to pass the hips, all that kind of stuff. I don't have any other goal than that. That's it. And I may try five different ways, or maybe I'll try one way five times. And then if none of them work, I'll ask you at the end of the rule, like, what was I doing? Or what were you doing to prevent it? Like, yeah. explain to me the problem because I'm not seeing it yet. And I find that when I do that, like I'm trying different things, I'm not stuck with one, or maybe I know it can work, I'm just trying to make the minutia of it work. And then I'm always getting the feedback, right? I'm never, like, I always ask. I never wanna just get frustrated and leave. Like, fuck this, it just doesn't work. Or, <laughs> you know, Dan cheated, he's clearly taking steroids. <laughs> you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like no, like, or, or I'm just really bad at jiu-jitsu, I'll never good at it. It's like, no, no, no. Keep the plan simple. Try when it fails, go back. Ask for feedback. You do that enough, and I have no problem asking anybody for help on anything ever, jujitsu related or not. It's like, I, just, I don't care anymore. I just don't. Because the worst thing that's gonna happen is someone outside of jujitsu is going to laugh at me for my apparent stupidity. And depending, maybe I'll just choke them out and then they won't laugh at me anymore. <laughs> and you know, if there's cops listening, I'll never do that because I don't want to get in trouble, but <laughs> maybe I will, you know, or, or maybe I just won't care that they laughed because who gives a fuck? Honestly, that's probably the worst thing that'll happen. I might get fired from a job, not my job currently because I work in the gym, but maybe I get fired from a job. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I don't want to work with that person anyways, because they're laughing at me for asking a question. And it's like, it's hard, but the more you do it, it's like any other muscle, you exercise it and it gets easier. And then all of a sudden you start to figure things out faster because you're less worried about the failure portion of it. And you're more worried about how to develop yourself. Mm -hmm. You're more worried about the persistence and the responsibility of the task at hand and putting in the hard work to do it and um, all those kinds of things. The things that I find more important than the failure itself, though they're all related to failure in some way. And, but if I can get rid of the the stress and the fear of the failure, all of a sudden I can think clearer, right? I'm, I'll put in more work. I'll try a lot harder, you know, those kinds of things. And it, it seems to me to be a way more beneficial way to solve problems. I agree a hundred percent. It's uh, I think jujitsu provides such a great vehicle for learning that lesson. Um, but it is a difficult lesson to learn regardless. Um, but once you get to that point where, you know, like you're saying, you're, you're trying to do a guard pass or, or whatever it is you're working on, that eventually after failure, after failure, after failure, you'll get it. You're like, oh, that's the piece I was missing. And then it's super easy. And then you have a new tool yeah. in your tool bag and you, you know something new. You have a new capability uh, and oftentimes it's going to feel like a superpower because you waded through all of the failure. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, it's one of those things that 
man, without having a good example in your life of, of that actually working and being able to look back at a failure, but then realize the benefits that came from it, um, without an example like that in your life, it, it, I don't know if you can just describe it to somebody. I think that's where competitive sports are really, really important. Yes. Um, because you need to not only learn how to win, but you need to learn how to lose. And to get those benefits from that loss and to learn. Um, you want to lose properly, yeah. fairly. Yeah. You know, uh, with sportsmanship, let's say. Yeah. And we talked about this last week, but you want to be able to lose or win in a way that makes the people around you want to play with you again too. If you handle losing or failure badly, no one's going to want to be around you, right? You're, you're the jerk that yep. no one on the team wants to play with or no one at work wants to be on a project with because you're an asshole when you lose and you're unpleasant and you can't handle it and you're fragile. It's Unless like, you're the president, apparently. Because <laughs> yeah, well, that sounds like a very good description of him. And, and that actually stuff. wasn't even my intention, but yeah. now that I think about it, yes. Like, yeah. but think about all the people around him. Like, the, I don't, I don't, the, maybe this isn't true, but um, I would be shocked if there have been more appointees in the White House that have left the White House during a term. And if there have been more books written about the president from former employees of him in the White House than our current president. Like I said, I don't know the answer to this question or this assumption, this hypothesis, this scientific theory, social scientific theory. <laughs> but it would not surprise me if, I mean, there's like been like eight books written about him yeah. from people who worked in his, in the White House. And it's like, I think a big reason for that is because he just doesn't play well with others and no one wants to be around him. And he's fucking impossible to get along with mm -hmm. because he can't fail. And yet all he does is put his foot in his mouth. And he does some good things, like you know, give the credit where credit's due. Like there, there's some things him and his cabinet have done, I would assume at least, that are not horrible. It's got to be something. I, well, I mean, <laughs> he at least has not, you know, maybe some people maybe he has, but it seems to me that the country has managed to function at about the same level as it did four years ago. Like we're not in some kind of a, you know, deep destructive authoritarian regime. And there might be some argument for that. I think people might make that argument. I won't, but it's like the market's been doing okay. People have been having jobs. Unemployment's been pretty low for a long, you know, minus COVID. Um, like, so there's some like good things probably, but no, everyone hates working with him because mm -hmm. he doesn't know how to accept stuff. It's like, get over yourself, grow up, stop being a, you know, stop being a two-year-old with a tantrum well, by all by all accounts, apparently that's just how he was raised. Which you know, he's he's the product of that, unfortunately. Um, well, it's shelter, right? He was sheltered too. It was shelter, and it was an inordinate placing of value on winning and nothing else. He he never learned how to learn from a loss. Yeah, that was the ultimate failure. And, you know, he would be rejected by his father and, and all that. And that's pretty intense stuff. Um, so, yeah, an environment like that is going to produce a Trump. And a social environment like we have now is going to allow a Trump to get into office. Mm -hmm. Trump's a symptom. You know, I, I personally, I, I think he's a piece of human being. Um, 
but you think he's a what, sir? Piece of shit human being. Okay. I'll say that nice and clear. Um, but really, he's just a symptom of the real problem. Yeah, we we need to get him out of office. He's not the guy that should be running shit. But it's the the system itself, the current political climate that um, is so cancerous. So anyway, I'm getting a little little tangential here. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Like I said, I, I didn't even have Trump in mind when I was thinking of that. Yeah. Um, but it does fit, you know, I, and I think everyone knows that kind of person, or at least grew up with someone yeah. like that, who, when things don't go their way, they don't know how to handle it. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard. I think everyone's probably went through a scenario where bad stuff occurred, like there was legitimate failures, and you did not know what to do. I've had those in my life too, you know, and, and they're scary, but the more and more you deal with them, and you mentioned there was part of the reason you like competitive sports. This is also why I like them is that in particular, I like jujitsu. Um, you said it simulates life. Mm -hmm. And, but I mean, it's, it's an actual simulation, not only of life and death, like again, for those who don't uh, know jujitsu, um, Dan had mentioned you tap on the body to signify that you give up. Now, what that signifies is that if you didn't, if I have you in a choke and you don't tap, eventually you will just die. Like that's what will happen. Or if I have you in an arm lock and you don't tap, I will rip the top, you know, your hand up to your elbow away from your elbow to your shoulder. Like you just, you will have a non-functioning arm. It will be broken. If I get you in a heel hook, you probably and you don't tap, you may never walk correctly again, fucking period. Like it's devastating shit. So you get into a fight with someone for real and they don't tap because they don't know to, you may just kill them unless you know what you're doing. Like it's real shit, it's real life. Because yeah. sometimes you just experience things in life and you just die. That's just what happens. Most people, that isn't one, what One time. Yeah. That right. happens one time. It happens one time though. <laughs> right, so... In something like jujitsu, you see this in, in wrestling itself. You see this in sambo and a lot of other um, combat uh, style grappling sports. You can do this repetitively for a very long time, which is exactly the same thing that humans do when they simulate situations in their head before they act upon them. And I'll give you a very simple example of this because we were talking about that school about not being able to say no for dances. Um, anyone who's ever asked somebody out on a date in their life, I, I, I defy someone to let us know that they didn't think it through at least once first, mm -hmm. didn't simulate it in their head, at least the positive, like I'm going to ask, you know, such and such, and she's going to, or he, or they are going to say yes. And then you go do it. Most people are going to simulate that sort of thing 10, 15, 20 times. And if you're a little bit more on the neurotic side, so the psycholo psychological uh, neuroticism, not to, um, that's what I mean. So you're more susceptible to negative emotion. Maybe you're more susceptible to anxiety. You're probably going to go over it 100 times and they're all going to be bad. So one of those might actually lead to death. Like for someone who's very anxious, you may think about asking someone out on a date and then somehow you get killed as a result she freaks out and pushes you in front of a bus yeah it, maybe you know but you're gonna do all of that and that basically is what we do in jujitsu every day we roll we just do it physically 
is we go through all of these different scenarios. And then when you're in a position where if you don't stop, you're going to die or lose a limb, you tap and start over. Mm -hmm. Like that was a bad course of action. I'm not going that direction again, or I'm not doing that. And then you just keep going and you keep going. And you learn how to exercise your brain that way because you learn, okay, well, I'm, I can go back for another one. But if you can't handle that well, and I've ran into, you know, we're a pretty small gym here, but I've ran into probably a dozen people who you can tell that they can't handle it. You know, they, they get tapped and they're pissed. Yep. Excuse me. And it's mostly white belts. It's mostly athletic men, younger ones who come in and they expect because of their athleticism or muscles that, you know, they can, they can, you know, roll over somebody and then that doesn't happen because it's hard <laughs> and, <laughs> and muscles only get you so far, you know, um, and then they don't know how to handle it. I actually, that was actually tough for me when I first started jujitsu. Um, at the time, uh, this is a, a slight side tangent, but I went to the doctor the other day and I'm actually down 20 pounds from when I competed last year. I don't know how I don't have 20 pounds to lose, but I'm 20 <laughs> pounds lighter. Wow. And, um, when I started jujitsu, I was some 159 right now. I competed at like 176, a little bit under 20 pounds. And, um, I was like 188, but I was working out at the time and um, really top heavy. And uh, like I had to buy new shirts because like they didn't fit my biceps, mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. And um, and I, I came in all muscle bound and you know, I'm a competitive guy and uh, hadn't really, I hadn't uh, done much physical activity in walks. I'd stopped going to the gym for a few months and was needed something. And um, I got partnered with um, one of our buddies, Sean, who doesn't mm -hmm. train with us anymore. He trains in another gym, but Sean's like five, six, a hundred and competing. He's 135 pounds in a gi. <laughs> and he's just this tiny guy and he's got a little bit of a mean streak to him. You know, he's kind of the guy, you, you know, at parties that has got a crazy eye. And like, if you don't want to uh, say anything mean to him, cause he'll fuck you up. He, that was the, you know, we kind of had that vibe to me and he still kind of does and I love him for it. But, um, he just repeatedly choked the shit out of me with like no smile. Cause he doesn't really smile that much. And so he's got this like angry look on his face as he's like showing me how to do these moves. <laughs> and he's just like choking me and choking me and just staring into my eyes. And, and I was like, I was getting frustrated because I was like, there's nothing I could do. I thought I could just crush him. I thought I could curl him cause he was he's small. And no matter what I did, he just choked the fuck out of me just repeatedly. And I almost didn't go back. I actually almost did not come back. I went home. I had to walk home and that was hard because doing jujitsu, you get sore. And so like I had to walk up a hill and it like it was my, my butt cramped up like halfway up. I like sit for a second, like in stretch. Like it was, it was pretty rough. And my girlfriend's like, how did it go? And I was like, I fucking hate this. Like, I can't believe it. Like this, <laughs> this, this tiny ass kid, this, this angry guy, he's like older than me. He's got gray beard. You know, he's just choking me. And I like, he's like the size of my leg. Like this is crap. And she's like, just go back one more time. Like you need to do some physical activity. Like you need to go do something, just try. And so I came back and um, the rest was history. Cause I was hooked because it was so hard. Yeah. And I was like, I, you know, I'm a very cerebral individual. I was like, I can figure this out. I don't, I think I waited like three years to tell him that story. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we trained for three years before he moved on or about three and a half. And, and I, I finally told him one day, I was like, you terrified me because you just, you had this angry look and you just like stared at me as you choked me and repeatedly. And <laughs> that's fantastic. Like your, his triangle chokes were so tight and partly because my shoulders were so big and he's small. So like he had to make them tight in order to make it work. 
And because um, I had pretty broad shoulders at the time, and I've slimmed up a lot now, but um, it's like you, you gotta you gotta be able to accept that failure, otherwise you're you're gonna do what I almost did, which is just quit something and never try again. Mm-hmm. And exactly that probably right. would have been one of the worst decisions of my my late you know my life, not doing this. Like I don't know where I would be right now if I didn't have even though we can't train at the moment, like un- being able to talk about and theorize and watch jujitsu at least. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know how I would function as a human. It's weird to think about that, but I don't know if I'd actually be able to, to be a, fu- a fully functional adult without what jujitsu has given me. Yeah. After Sean decided to, you know, beat the fuck out of a white belt. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, anybody who gets into jiu-jitsu has that experience. I'm sure, yeah. Um, if you're lucky, you can get past the frustration and say, man, I got to learn how to do that. This little guy just wrapped me up. Um, I was at a seminar. Uh, we did a seminar with Pedro Sauer. And for those unfamiliar, Pedro Sauer is uh, he's one of the um, the old school. He's actually a coral belt, a red black belt. But he's one of the old school um, black belts. His his friend from like teenage years was Hickson Gracie, the famous Hickson, uh, son of the the founders, some of the founders of Gracie Jiu Jitsu and of Jiu Jitsu. And Hick, uh, Pedro's a big fucking deal, and he's uh, our you know he's a, he's the one who gave our black belt his black belt. And um, we had a seminar, and he had asked, you know, who who here thinks that they've tapped the most out of anybody, right? Mm. And he, you know he. And some of the black belts raised their hand and a few of the white belts did and people chuckled because the white belts tap all the time. And he's like, you're all wrong. He's like, I've been doing this for 40 years. It's like, I have tapped more than everyone here, which means I have failed at something more than everyone here. And like, that's how you get to be where I'm at. Mm-hmm. It's like, you ha- you, no one gets to where he's at, even Hickson, who never lost an actual Valley Tudo or like UFC fight or whatever. He never lost any of those fights. He didn't do the UFC. I don't think he did the Valley no. Tudo, but yeah. you know, he, he, there's stories of him getting, getting rolled up by his cousin, Halls Gracie, right? Who tragically died when he was very young, but even Hickson, you know, has mentioned that there, he'll grapple people and he'll lose. His son will tap him sometimes. And there'll be maybe sometimes where he gets people, people get him in situations and he lets them see what they can do, but even the best of the best still have to fail. Like, mm-hmm. and, and when you're young in particular, like you just get messed up by the people that are older and better than you. It's just how it works. It's integral to life. Yeah. And it's integral to growth, um, which is actually mostly what I associate failure with is, is growth. Once I started to realize that here in jujit- doing jujitsu, and it actually took me until I got to a blue belt to realize really truly what it meant to like fail and grow. Right. I knew that like I had to accept my lumps as a white belt and I didn't, and I was just kind of drowning in information and I just wanted mm-hmm. to, I just wanted to know that I could do at least one thing and make it work. Right. And survive. But once you start to get a better feel for your movement and stuff and you can actually kind of do things, then it kind of clicked one day and I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to fail until I get to a black belt. Like I'm just going to do stuff over and over again. I don't keep it as basic as I can and just fail not care. Like people catch white belt, catch me in armbar. I don't care. I'm gonna try and get out. Yeah. But it's like, you need to be able to do that because then you get into stressful situations and in the real world and you can, 
it's not, it's not that it's not dealing with a coworker who's unpleasant is nothing compared to having a 220 pound individual put their (laughs) hips as hard as they can into you while you're on the ground while simultaneously grabbing your collar with both hands and squeezing the life out of you. Like one is way worse than the other. (laughs) Brenda from accounting is not that bad. Yeah. But a very large athletic individual who's like putting his knuckles into the sides of your neck is way worse. Even if he's smiling about it and afterwards (laughs) he's like, hey, that was fun. Way worse, right? Having a 135 pound individual choke the life out of you is way worse than whatever it is your boss said to you. Maybe not, not, maybe not completely whatever. There's probably some things bosses could say. You're fired could be problematic. That I was thinking that one would be <laughs> fine. I was thinking more of like uh, f- different forms of harassment, but, um, but even still, like you would really learn how to handle those things when you get put into these really weird positions that are like incredibly violent and terrifying. And then they get kind of normalized because it's safe. And so all the stuff in the real world is like, ah, well, you know, yesterday, everything else down. Yeah. Yesterday I almost puked because someone put so much pressure on my chest that I couldn't like hold in my own stomach contents. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so whatever you're throwing at me right now, I'm just really not, I don't don't really care. Like it's just going to bounce off. This is a great ad for jujitsu, man. I know, right? So many people. Um, (laughs) You know, in terms of failure, this uh, reminds me of the old story and, and, the exact numbers may be a little bit disputed, but the uh, the concept holds. When uh, when Thomas Edison was working on the light bulb, I forget the exact year when that was, but he was already a big deal. He was a very well-known inventor. Um, and he was trying to figure out how to generate electric light in a reliable fashion. And a reporter came by to, a uh, newspaper reporter came by to, to interview him and he was still experimenting on, on a light bulb, and he hadn't quite got it dialed in yet. Um, the, the story goes, ultimately, he tried like 10,000 different mm-hmm. things uh, to create the filament of the light bulb. And when the re- reporter came by, he asked him, hey, how's it going? It's like, well, yeah, at that point, I think he had tried 5,000 different materials for a filament, and uh, none of them were effective. Um, and the reporter asked him, he says, well, how does it feel to, to be trying to do this and to have failed 5,000 times? And Edison said, uh, young man, you've got it wrong. I have not failed 5,000 times. I have successfully found 5,000 things that do not work. Mm-hmm. And just that little bit of shift in mindset, um, you know, it takes you away from the immediate result to the end goal of, of learning a thing or discovering a new technology um, that takes a lot of the sting off of a quote-unquote failure. Like, yeah, no, I just learned something else that doesn't work. Don't forget that. Don't lose the lesson and, right, and right. keep going at it. Um, you know, go ahead and tap and start over. That's okay. Um, but for, for a lot of people, and again, for without having a direct experience um, in, in some format, competitive sports are a very good way to do that. Any, any discipline that requires that you work on self-discipline, martial arts are great for that, but really anything that requires discipline, mm-hmm. um, has the, the potential to teach that lesson very well. But I don't think enough of those activities are, you know, popular nowadays. Which is a shame. It really is. It, it really, really is. Um, and it's, it's not information that you are likely to stumble across, which is another um, 
another challenge to that situation. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's not that many examples of successful failures, at least that are being you know, reported on in the media for people to you know, look up and go, oh, well, that guy failed a bunch of times, but still ultimately succeeded, then maybe I'll push through. I think there's one, well, I'll make one pushback to that. I, there's one big one that I don't think anyone really likes to talk about, but technically fits what you're describing. Okay. And, that, and that's Trump. He's, also, he's bankrupted like 12 businesses. He's failed so many times at different things. And look at him. He's a billionaire who's the president. I think the you know, there's you know there's circumstances as to why a lot of that's occurred. Like, I'll, yeah, don't get me wrong. I but, don't think that was based on setting his ego aside and learning <laughs> from the lesson. No, um, but yeah. technically speaking, he is an example of someone who has failed his way to success. Well, failing your way to success, I believe right. that's called the Peter Principle. That's that's a different phenomenon mm-hmm. where. Yeah, you basically will will fail your way to the the highest position that, <laughs> all right. You typically one position higher than you are capable of dealing with. Um, so yeah, it's not to say that that uh, failure is absolutely a good thing, or, or you know, failure should be the goal. It's just the byproduct of the journey that takes you to success. Exactly. But yeah. just because you fail doesn't mean like, oh, hey, good job, learn from your failure. Like, no, sometimes sometimes you just fucked up and you probably should try and learn from that. Or sometimes you're gaming a system of some sort and that's just unfortunate. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, rather than, you know, bankrupting six businesses as a failure, <laughs> that you may very well consider that a win. Like, sure. Yeah, I milked six businesses for X amount of dollars and then I folded them up and was not accountable for that money and got yeah. to write it all off on my taxes. <laughs> Could just call that a win. Yeah, the, I, um, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll take that point. That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One last thing I thought would be interesting to talk about. We spent a good amount of the podcast uh, talking about some of the way, or a, a lot of the ways in which sheltering into kids in particular from from failure can manifest into in, into the world and how i think it actually part in part has manifested into the world but we have yet to really touch too much on sort of the opposite of that which is not allowing for failure because of its inherent badness or sh- the shame the shamefulness of of failure and that's kind of the other side of the coin and i think i think in fact actually with schools in particular that's actually why we see a condemnation of like aggressive sports and aggressive behavior in sports and competition is because you take that too far and you have, well, I mean, you, you, to some degree you have, uh, um, you have the person nobody wants to play with because they're aggressive. They're too competitive. They win at all costs. They, you know, they tend to, um, game the system that sort of thing. And I, I think it'd be something that's interesting to um, just spend a minute on, even if it's only a minute, just kind of going through the total downsides of what it is to to reject failure at all costs and only try to win at things. Well, I think it's it's a the flip side of the same coin. And... <clears throat> 
if you are deathly afraid of failure and you're not willing to risk things, then you lose opportunities. Mm -hmm. But if you are deathly afraid of failure and will do whatever is necessary to make sure that doesn't happen, including, you know, hurting other people and cheating and, and whatever else, um, that's, that is also a byproduct of a, um, poor conceptualization of the value of failure. Uh, and a lot of society supports that winner take all, winning is all that matters um, type of mentality, and uh, including Trump by his own admission. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's big in the business world. Oh, yeah. And see, I mean, the thing is, um, it, it depends entirely on a person's own values. If you value winning above all else, then the only thing matters is whether or not you won. And as it stands right now, in, in any competitive environment, really, but business being one of, if not the largest environment, because the, the rewards are money <laughs> and, and, you know, the, uh, the power and privilege that comes with that, mm -hmm. um, it will attract the type of person that is willing to do whatever it takes to win. Um, and those people will inevitably rise, rise to the top of that system if the correct checks and balances are not in place, which I don't, I don't believe they are. They've, they've been attempted. They just, I think they need to be refined, um, whether it's, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anti-monopoly, uh, legislation and things like that, mm -hmm. or, um, so it's a, it's a recognized phenomenon that you got to keep people in check if they are hyper competitive like that. Um, and the, like I said, the business world has attracted the people that either maybe they have some moral flexibility or maybe they literally don't have the morals at all. They're straight up sociopathic or, or even psychopathic sure. in some instances. Um, they will still be allowed to thrive in that environment. So they do. Um, and people will want to model those people because that's what they see as someone who has what they want. They got the, the house and the cars and the boats and whatever else. So how did he get that? How did she get that? You got to be this way. Okay, I guess I'm going to be that way. So it's not a great example for um, how to lead a uh, productive and happy life as an individual, but if the most important thing to you is winning, if that's your number one value, then that's what you're going to do. So it comes to a question of, of uh, personal values more than anything. Have better ones. Yeah. Or, or not. Yeah. You and I think that's a bad thing, but the person who's winning at all costs may go, nope, I'm getting exactly the result I sure. want and I don't care about anybody else. So I'll rephrase that then. For those people out there who don't have winning as the highest value, I would suggest when you see individuals who most likely have that as the highest value and they're at the top, getting angry isn't going to solve the problem. Nope. Because they're at the top for a lot of reasons. Some of those are going to be corruption. Some of those are going to be psychopathic tendencies. Some of those are going to be they're just better than you. They're smarter, they work harder, they can put in 18 hours a day and be more efficient, whatever. Probably it's a bit of all of that. It's hard to not be envious of people who are successful regardless of how they got there. Mm -hmm. But if their values are different, what they're willing to do to attain what to attain the 
you know, the top of that value structure is going to be different than yours. So sort your values out, find out what's most important to you. And then do what you can, as hard as you can, at that value and stop trying to, um, what's, how does the saying go? Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Yeah. Right. Like maybe, maybe something like that, right. Is that look, failure's fine. Move on, fail more, fail better. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but to hold whatever standard you have to somebody else who has different goals than you, it just seems to me that that's a recipe for envy and resentment. I think that falls back on personal responsibility. If you, it always does, right? <laughs> if you're insightful enough to know that about yourself, uh, and I had a pretty similar experience when I got out of the gym industry, just realizing, oh, I'm not willing to do everything that these other guys are willing to do in order to to sell people memberships and training packages and whatnot. Um, but if you if you can realize that then hopefully you can also realize that since your values are not aligned, that's not something that you need to be envious of at all. And that's hard. It is hard. It's, it's very hard. It's, yeah, no, it's very, very hard. Um, but I think the sooner people can realize that and move on, the happier they'll be and the easier it'll be for people to move forward in the world. Yep. You know, I, I see that as an issue right now. I mean, I, I'm not entirely convinced and maybe this will be a radical statement, I don't really care, but generally speaking, the left is concerned about the dispossessed, the people who, the inequality in the world. And generally speaking, conservatives are, con are concerned with keeping the hierarchies that we have in place stable, right? They're less concerned with the dispossessed than they are with making sure that the, the structures that we have are functional. Yep. And there's problems with both of those because inequality is a real problem, but you get hierarchies that are, you know, too flat and or not too flat, too, uh, too narrow. And then it gets corrupt and then everyone's at zero, but a few people. And then this whole society destabilizes. So you need both, but it, it's not self-evidently clear to me that at least right now that the left is just concerned with the unequal and the dispossessed. Part of me is concerned and could see a case to be made for the notion that they're actually just envious of the rich, which is different than wanting to help the poor. I, I actually am not entirely convinced that that's what they're... We were talking last week about how like Trump has done some things, but they've been self-serving, but they've helped people. Mm -hmm. I think I could, I, I could entertain a case for the opposite end of that when it comes to helping the dispossessed, that in an attempt to help, in an attempt to dismantle and take away all that the 1% or the 0.01% have earned, it will somehow help the, the people who experience inequality, which will be the goal, right? Right. But I don't think that that's the actual goal. I think I think it's entirely probable that it's just envy and resentment. And it's the it, the mask that's being paraded around is let's help everyone stacked up at zero. But it's really not like that. That's just the front and will be right. something that would actually 
be fixed, hopefully, with, with say the, the the redistribution of wealth as an example, because there is a there is a, like a, a big polarization with our our monetary distribution in this country. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's a little absurd. Yep. Like that actually is a problem, but if your ultimate goal is to just take down the 0.01% and then you're able to actually help the dispossessed as well, like why not just tell everyone you wanna help the dispossessed? That sounds way better than fuck the rich. I think it's, 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 it's a more effective marketing message. Yeah. It's a lot easier to rally people behind one big bad enemy, the 1% or whoever it is you wanna label it as, than convincing people to help a larger group of individuals that are, um, you know, in, in a bad situation, whether it's, you know, impoverished or, or whatever, um, the downtrodden, if you will, that's not as motivating. People are a lot more motivated, motivated by anger than they are empathy. Yeah. So that's, I think that's just a matter of, of what, what message would effectively lend itself to being, you know, shared and listened to. Um, and that's, that's only been proven by the search algorithms that now feed us everything that it thinks that we want to engage with. Mm -hmm. And what they've discovered is that the things that, uh, outrage people are the things that they want to engage with the most. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it taps into very primal bits of our psyche that, ultimately, you know, need to be addressed and recognized and, you know, regulated in some way to acknowledge that at the level of society itself, when this type of um, focused engagement is allowed to just do its own thing and, and involve in its, in its own unimpeded way, um, that we get what we are seeing right now with, you know, all the, the echo chambers and, and the recreational outrage and all that. Um, I like that recreational outrage. Yeah. It's way better than peaceful protests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's, you know, that needs to be addressed at the level of, of recognizing the, the human nature and the, the dominant psyche in, in an environment like social media. Mm -hmm. So could you imagine if it became known, like let's say something, it was leaked that the powers that be, let's say on the left, it was leaked that their actual motivation wasn't to help people, but it was simply to redistribute power. Like fundamentally, it was, we don't care about who gets it. We right. just don't like the people who have it. That's a way different message than we would like to take people who have it and give it to the people who don't. There's, they're very different things. I would be very surprised to see how our country reacted to that. Part of me thinks that a big part of the country would be fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But I think that a larger portion would actually be a little offended. Because of the role that they would play as a pawn versus as someone who is feeling right. righteous about the inequalities that they face. Yeah. In in reality, that wouldn't even matter. It's like, it doesn't, you're, you're a body, mm -hmm. let's say, versus a, a human individual person. Right. 
um, for for ends and means that you can't control, that actually don't have anything to do with you. And in that in that way too, I think the average American individual would actually what the let's say assuming this is all true the left would be doing just what the let's say everyone the wealthy is doing which is just using the populace for their own means which is exactly what people are really railing against is that like the system isn't working for us you're using the system for your own gains it's corrupt let's say but it's not helping us yeah and so to find out that like the people they think are supposed to be helping them don't actually give a fuck they're just like well you're a good pawn to use to get what we want, which is something else. And then maybe you'll get something from it and we'll see. I think that's happening in general. Uh, so our recent poll on uh, people's faith in the, the current governmental system, it's, yes. very, it's very low. People, I think, you know, people definitely understand things like Occupy Wall Street. They definitely get a, a small grain of that message to a whole lot of people. Uh, I think most people understand that um, there's an enormous wealth gap in the country right now and it's not getting any better. Mm -mm. Um, but when it comes to, you know, well, what do we do about it? How can we fix it? Can we fix it? Are we all just screwed? Uh, that is, that's, it's a long nuanced discussion mm -hmm. that most people aren't going to be willing to have or even able to have due to time constraints yeah. or the opportunity to have because they are constantly inundated by other information throughout the day, yeah. typically of their own design and, um, you know, whatever the, the algorithm has decided to give them. Uh, you know, Bill Gates made a really interesting uh, observation on a, a talk he recently gave. Um, it was a, a Zoom call, I forget who it was with, but he pointed out, because they were talking about the, the current situation and the political climate and everything, and he pointed to the ability to micro-target uh, as the, the means for so much of the separation that we see right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's basically the same thing as the, you know, the echo chambers. It's basically what produces the echo chambers. But the ability for an organization, whether it's an advertising organization or a political organization, to fine-tune uh, the very specific groups they want to send their message to uh, coupled with the sheer amount of information on, on anything and, and any different opinion about that information that's available that makes it possible to hear some really crazy ideas and to never have them challenged um, in, in, you know, your informational world. Mm -hmm. You can saturate yourself with people that agree with these crazy ideas, whether it's, you know, flat earth or aliens in the middle, middle of the uh, hollow earth or, um, all kinds my of dad believes that last one. Yeah. So that type of thing. And that is made possible because typically up until the internet, when information was dispersed, you know, you had three television channels, uh, a handful of local radio stations, and they were broadcast at a level that if you were to make a crazy claim like that, um, enough people, even if you're susceptible to believing in it, enough people around you would go, whoa, what is this? That's mm -hmm. bullshit. Um, so then you would hear competing ideas in that way. 
But now, because we can micro-target so effectively, um, you can hear nothing but people that agree with ridiculous ridiculousness um, literally 24-7. Yeah. And for you, it'll it'll trip that that uh, part of your psychiatry or your, your uh, psyche, rather, that convinces you that, quote-unquote, everybody believes X. Um, and whether that's, you know, Dunbar's number of mm-hmm. 150 people or, or whatever, um, for everybody, there's a number where you hear it and it's going to feel like everybody that you associate with or everybody that you can relate to feels a certain way. Exactly, yeah. Um, and therefore, anybody that doesn't is the other, so we can attack them. Um, and I I think he makes a fantastic point. That does really seem to be a negative byproduct of the ability to micro-target and saturate someone's uh, access to information with very specific and unchallenged messages. Just another one of many problems that were that are new for yeah. our culture that yep. we don't know how to deal with. Yeah. What are we going to do, man? How are we going to fix this? Eat a steak. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to get hungry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'll be lunchtime. I got steak all in line. (laughs) How long have we been going? Uh, About two and a half hours. Or or no, an hour and a half, hour 45. That's not bad. I think we're at a good spot here. Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and close her out. Um, You want to take it away? I got nothing. I got steak on my brain. <laughs> um, again, I just I want to say that, uh, you know, if you find this type of conversation interesting or uh, inspiring or engaging, um, I think that this type of longer form conversation and uh, creating a truly safe space for ideas is critical to getting us past our current situation as a society. So if you can spread the word, and or create your own conversations, whether or not they're just one-on-one uh, on a, a Zoom call with a close friend or maybe start your own podcast. Uh, again, I, I can't tell you how, how effective it is and how, uh, how much it can focus your thoughts by literally just putting a microphone in front of yourself and just the exercise of knowing that you're going to uh, record your thoughts and try to present them in the best way you can will help you think more clearly and explore these ideas in a way that maybe you hadn't. All of which is to say, do a podcast, even if you don't plan on publishing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, don't be afraid to publish it either. We really need to get more of this type of reasonable conversation, uh, accessible and um, digested. We need more people thinking. Yeah. I think, and, you know, to bring this full circle to failure. I think people are afraid to think for a myriad, for myriad reasons. And you're right. Recording this and then listening back to it. Um, the first time we recorded, I had like nightmares the night of, I was like, I said terrible things. This is going to get put out in the world and I'm going to immediately get canceled. And then I listened to it and I was like, Oh, this is fairly reasonable. Like I was like, ah, oh, nothing I said really bothered me that much. Yeah. It seemed way more, because it was the first time, it seemed way more bothersome after the fact. And then I, lo- and I listened to it and I was like, what did I think I said that was like so absurd? Like I was nervous, but, you know, you, you force yourself to to think through and articulate your thoughts as well as you can. 
And then as you say it, you're aware of it and you go, wait a minute, that's not really what I meant. Let me let me try and reframe that, re-say that, restate it in a way that is both true to what you believe internally, but also, you know, gets the point across and is, if possible, you know, I, I want to try and be as accommodating to people as I can. You know, I, um, I don't, you know, so as an example, I don't want to run around and say very, very inappropriate things in marginalized people for no fucking reason as you know, but I may not agree with some things that people think and they may assume that it's me marginalizing and there's a difference. And so if I can articulate myself well enough, I can hopefully avoid both. Yeah. You know, because if you challenge ideas, people are going to hate it. There's, there's no way to not offend somebody. If you have a big enough group of people listening, you'll offend one of them. There's no way around it. So the best thing you can do is read more and learn how to articulate your points in a way that gets your point across as clearly as possible without any ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of, I think, a lot of it is a misunderstanding, I think, when people vocalize their ideas. And we see this in the, in the news all the time right now. And... Um, people vocalize their ideas and the, but they do it poorly and then everyone takes it out of context. You know, um, there was like a Senator or something. I don't remember the full story, but he basically called out, um, you know, critical race theory, independent of Trump and the, the memo that he did, but he called out critical race theory and lesbians. That was what he said. I think it was, he's like, he, he Maybe he said crazy leftism and lesbians, something like that. I forget the phrase, but I'm pretty sure lesbians was part of it. And like, that's a badly articulated idea. Partly what he's, I think he was trying to say is that, you know, there's a, there's a certain academic uh, ideology that has some authoritative and pathological issues to it, which sounds a whole lot better than, you know, crazy leftists and lesbians, you know, it's like, sure. they're, they're totally different things. I, my assumption is that that's what he was trying to get across. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Maybe he's just doesn't like lesbians, <laughs> but you say that a few times and you're like, ah, it's not really what I mean. Let me rephrase that into a, into something that sounds a little bit better, but still disagrees with the, wh whoever I'm trying to disagree with, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and this is a really good outlet for that. At least for me, when I listen back to it, I'm like, Ooh, I could have said that better. Or like, Oh, that wasn't that bad. Like, I could have said um a few less times or mumbled a little bit less, but I like where that's going. Now I just need to tweak it. And then next week yeah. I'll try and tweak the argument, make it a little bit tighter. And hopefully in five years, I'll be able to say a sentence that sounds good <laughs> and I'll be able to articulate a point that's. <laughs> yep. It's, it's an incredibly valuable thought exercise. Yeah. And I, I would also offer to the audience, um, you know, cancel culture is real. I don't want to suggest that everyone try to, you know, buck the culture and, and put yourself at uh, social risk in the sense that you might lose your job or, or something like that. Those, those things are real. Um, so even if you don't have any intentions of publishing, it is incredibly valuable just to articulate your ideas, record them and listen to them back. Mm -hmm. um, but also, if, if you feel strongly enough about this, and if you are willing to stand up that is what is absolutely required at this point in time. What has given the woke movement so much power is that ability to cancel. 
And silence. And it effectively silences people that would have, um, you know, contradictory, potentially better, maybe worse ideas, but it clears out the marketplace of ideas so that their ideas are the default and therefore you have to listen to them. And it's, it's, um, it's sending the country and frankly the world into a, a negative direction We're you know, we're literally going back in time in, uh, in terms of our, you know, humanity and, and ability to, to get along as several billion people on this here little rock. Um, so yeah, if you have the ability and, you know, maybe, maybe just change your everybody. Don't, don't post this on Facebook, but find a different group that you can interact with and share these ideas and, you know, publish a podcast under a different name, whatever it is that makes sense, but do the exercise, uh, work on your critical thinking skills. And if you have the opportunity and ability, share those with other people, because it's, it's the conversation that needs to happen. If we all sit at home alone going, boy, isn't this messed up? Then nothing's going to change. Very, very true. Yeah. All right, ladies and gents, with that, I'm your host, Willie Wonka. And with me is Dan, the Gumby Man. I'm free. (laughs) You guys have a good one. All right. Bye, everybody.